Some fusion energy approaches do use a cylindrical schemes such as pulse power schemes. Here we can get the most efficient implosion, coupling of our implosion energy to the hot plasma using a spherical configuration because it essentially squeezes the plasma from all directions. So the inward implosion, we were doing mechanical work on the fuel and that's what causes it to be compressed and heated to such extreme conditions. And when you're pushing on all sides equally, such as a sphere, it's a more efficient piston. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Andrea Lynn Kreitcher. She's a physicist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. We're going to talk about what's called the hybrid E capsule that enables inertial confinement fusion. I know very little bit about it, so she's going to be describing it. So welcome, uh, Andy. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me a bit about your background and then how did you get to start working on fusion projects? So I've been working on plasma physics, either experiments or design for about 18 years now. So that's trying to understand the processes that occur in plasmas. I became interested in the National Ignition Facility back in 2005 when I was out at Livermore for a summer internship and decided to go fusion route during my thesis project. Started out probing the conditions of these experiments with X-ray Thompson scattering and then moved on to design work. And so for about 10 or a little bit more than that years now of designing these inertial confinement fusion experiments. And what designing means is we set the input conditions to the experiment, including the target details, the, the dimensions, the materials, as well as how the laser is defined as a function of time, the very specific powers at very specific times going into the target so that we could make these extreme plasma conditions. So what are the different ways of uh, producing fusion? And, you know, what's uh, inertial confinement answer that? That's a great question. So first off, should I start out describing what fusion is? Yeah, sure. Or is it... ways of achieving it. Yep. Mm. So fusion is when we smash two light nuclei together. These are isotopes of hydrogen and they combine into a heavier nucleus and a neutron and that process releases energy. The big challenge here is we have to get to really hot temperatures, hotter than the center of the sun to do this. In the inertial confinement fusion approach, we confine the plasma and reach these extreme conditions by making a miniature star in the laboratory. And this tiny little star in the laboratory is the size of half of a human hair, where we can create conditions that are five times hotter than the center of the sun and pressures greater than two times the center of the sun. And the way that we do that is using the biggest laser in the world to help us heat and compress this fusion fuel down to very small sizes to get a, a lot of energy density in our tiny hot plasma. So the experiments that, that happened recently, in those experiments, we take laser beams, we shine them onto the inside of a hollow cylindrical can. That creates a very hot x-ray oven, about 3 million degrees in temperature. That x-ray oven heats the outside of a spherical capsule that sits in the center of the can. And that 
ablates material outwardly, spherically outward, and in the rocket-like effect, that outward ablation of a material sends the remaining fuel inward and squeezes it down to these very, very high temperatures and densities and about a factor of 25 times smaller its initial size. So uh, our cylindrical geometry or you know, our spherical seems like it would be very incredibly difficult to balance you know, radial, I guess radially, spherically, all the pressure inwards towards the point. What, were you able to do a, a cylinder? Would that make it easier geometrically to do so? Some fusion energy approaches do use a cylindrical schemes, such as pulse power schemes. Here we can get the most efficient implosion, coupling of our implosion energy to the hot plasma using a spherical configuration because it essentially squeezes the plasma from all directions. So the inward implosion, we were doing mechanical work on the fuel, and that's what causes it to be compressed and heated to such extreme conditions. And when you're pushing on all sides equally, such as a sphere, it's a more efficient piston. Yeah, but how do you do it equally? I mean, the uncertainty principle, I would think, would uh, mean that the laser is going to have some variability in terms of energy and, you know, how fast the, uh, you know, the energy packets hit the sphere and where they hit the sphere. So, I don't know, it just seems like uh, there'll be a wobble. How would you do this seamlessly and accurately? Yeah, so that's one of the biggest challenges for... So, do that NEF is is requires very high precision, and a lot of what we did required working through making this very symmetric uniform x-ray oven around the capsule to implode it spherically inward. A lot of the approaches for IFE will have to address robustness to those asymmetries. And so there are many different schemes to doing this. There's going back to your previous question, we don't actually hit in these experiments, we don't actually hit the target, the capsule with the lasers. We create the x-ray oven with the lasers, and we have been able to control it to a very high degree. But moving forward, there's inertial fusion energy. Designs need to take that into consideration, that they can either accept more of these asymmetries or go to different geometries. Uh, Why do you have to go hotter than the sun? Why do you have to go more pressure than the sun? Why can the sun do this when, when human experimenters have to do more than the sun does in terms of temperature and pressure? So the sun has the advantage of extremely high volume and mass so that it can continue burning without having to reach these conditions. And the experiment that we're doing in the laboratory, we're trying to, it's very difficult to get DT fuel up to these extreme conditions required for fusion. And so we're trying to essentially ignite the plasma in the center of the implosion so that it can send a burn wave through the, the rest of the cooler, denser fuel. So in this scheme, we're trying to get to those extreme conditions so that we can essentially light a match or a spark, which then can propagate to the remaining DT fuel. And that's how we're able to get the bulk of the fuel up to these extreme conditions. But not all of the fuel is at those conditions. The center hot spark plasma is. So you have to overcook it in order to get the fusion to happen throughout the whole spheroid. Is that why? Yeah, we have to ignite the plasma to get the remaining portion of the fuel to burn up. So in the hotspot ignition scheme, we're doing work with a, f- a piston that is made out of deuterium tritium fuel on a, a small fraction of the initial fuel. We're heating and compressing that to the extreme conditions that I mentioned. And then once that ignites, then, and that's due to the self-heating from the fusion reactions themselves, then it sends burn wave throughout the remaining cooler, denser DT fuel. Can you create any artificial gravity by spinning this whole arrangement? 
you know, in a centrifuge or something, or does that just make it unnecessarily complex and not workable? So kind of like along those lines, but a different concept is we're trying to use magnetic fields to, to help us squeeze the plasma. And so we have a whole effort going into applying magnetic fields to these targets to see if it can help us squeeze the plasma down and, and release the requirements to get to these conditions. It's sort of a similar thought, but you can't, there's no way to get to the gravitational pulls that you're talking about in the laboratory, but we are thinking of other ways to try to help us squeeze the plasma down. Well, even if you get you don't get nearly as high a gravity, if you got some additional, is it does it do anything or it's just so you need so much more, it's really not worth it. Yeah, we're limited by the amount of mass that we can implode already. And so there's just not that much fusion fuel mass that you can implode to the extreme velocities to make this work. Hmm, okay. Now why is it called inertial confinement? It's confined under its own inertia. So as it's imploding, it's the whole process is a race against time. We don't expect this to be confined continuously, like you think of, for example, a tokamak plasma. It's meant to be a little implosion-explosion, and the confinement that surrounds how long it stays together before it explodes, it's confined by its own inertia, so it comes in at these extreme velocities. You try to get ignition conditions in that hot plasma in the center and try to burn up more of the rest of the fuel before the whole thing explodes back out under its own pressure. But that initial inertia of coming in, how well you can set up the implosion is what keeps it together long enough to try to burn up as much of the fuel as that you can. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. So this is, what, a one-time event, and then you have to stop the reactor? Or you know, how would you run something like this continuously? So in this scheme, you would have, it would be pulsed at the rate of about 10 hertz. So you would do these little explosions over and over and over again, continuously to get the power. But after an explosion, how does the, uh, the plasma reset back to its previous state? What is it? Is it kind of breathing and explodes out and then naturally collapses in and out and in and... That would be cool if that was the case, but no, unfortunately not. So the entire thing is blown apart and the target is vaporized. So the idea behind some of these schemes is to shoot these targets in at a high rep rate and blast them continuously with the lasers over and over again, multiple different targets. But again, after a given target explodes out, is there now more inertia to overcome to get it to implode again? Or is it easier once it's started? It's like how, it's how not the same target. No, it's, it, you're not hitting the same target over and over again. You hit a target, it explodes and vaporizes. It's gone. And so then you shoot in another target and start the whole thing over again. Right. That seems kind of a, yeah, an unusual way to do it. Do they have any running one after another so that 
So what's the recovery time from explosion to being able to reset it and have it do so again, have it explode again? So the viable plants are sort of looking at 10 hertz rate. So that would be you fire these 10 times a second continuously. And that's sort of what the technologies that are being investigated are aiming to achieve. So there's some demonstrations that we can fire these targets at that rep rate. There's a lot of other developments that need to happen to, you know, to make this a, a viable this approach a viable fusion energy power plant. And one of them is to get higher gains. So the higher, the more fusion energy you can get out of a given experiment, the the fewer times you have to fire it per second to get to the powers that you want to generate. So it, it's all integrated and there's a lot of development that needs to happen along the design line as well as experimental lines. What's the upper, upper limit on the cycling? Did you do 100 hertz or what's the upper limit? Or do you do multiple targets in succession? So if you have it go from one to another, by the time it cycles in the first one, you've had hundreds of others, let's say in a kind of an assembly line of explosions. Right. So the idea is an assembly line of explosions and you shoot the targets in. I'm not sure what exactly you're asking about the cycling time because it's not really the actual target and design. It's not a condition anymore because you have a chamber and it's exploded out. So you just shoot the next one in and and fire it. Again, it's the rep rate of the lasers... Right, that's what I mean. If if you're limited by ten hertz, so it's ten, I guess, explosions per second, wouldn't it wouldn't you be able to put out more power more continuously if you get it up to a hundred a second? You could cycle. Of course, it I would. Yeah. So so there's a lot of things that bo- the faster you have to do this, and the more challenging it is because of you know there's a whole list of reasons. You know, the laser has to be reparatable. You have to think about how fast you can shoot the target in before the last one has exploded out. I mean, that's one of the limiting factors. I don't know if 10 isn't the exact limit. It's just the limit. And uh, we try to keep it, you want as few shots required per second as possible because it just makes it more challenging. And 10 is kind of the minimum number that people are coming up with. But like, for example, you shoot a target and it explodes. Your target has to transit the edge of the chamber and reach the center of the chamber. And if that's a 100 per second rep rate, your target almost can't even like travel fast enough to make that happen and and so the precision laser pointing and you know firing everything becomes harder when you have to go at a higher rep rate but what if you had a a multiple chamber set up and each one you trigger the first one and then a hundredth of a second later you trigger the second the next the next the next so if if you could trigger let's say 10 in the time that you're ready to cycle the first one maybe get more power i know it's more material and all that lasers etc yeah no it's an interesting thought i actually you know we're thinking about things sort of along those lines, like it's easier to move the laser than it is to shoot the targets in at a certain hertz. And so like you could think of almost like a machine gun, you know, cartridge of targets and then you move the laser and you hit it several different times. As long as the target that hasn't been shot yet isn't impacted by the first explosion, that sort of scheme could work. And that because we're really good with laser engineering and pointing and precision and and it may be easier than shooting at the targets and at a high rep rate it might be easier to move the lasers down the line either to multiple target chambers or like within the same target chamber a line of targets well if you look at all the parameters and you look at like the theoretical limits of each wouldn't that point you to areas that are you know juicier or more 80 20 where you can get more juice out of the system like okay you know we can only move the target so fast So let's maybe do like a rotary laser arrangement where, again, multiple targets and a battery of lasers shoots out and hits them all at once. 
Yeah, something like that would be, and then we're just starting to investigate all the different prongs. So my area is trying to make higher gain designs so that you can get more out versus what you put in so you don't have to shoot it as high of a rep rate. But there's all these areas of being able to fabricate the targets, being able to shoot these things in, the laser development, and all these things are being investigated now and will play into to the area of parameter space you can go in for these types of schemes. Is the material that gets ablated, is that charged? And what if you put a, uh, you know, like a, an electric field that not only would the material explode outwards, but then the electric field would suck it away faster even than the explosion? The explosions only last for about 90 trillionths of a second. So that's not a limiting factor in clearing the area. You don't want your, after one goes off and then you have to shoot a target in from a 10 meter chamber or whatever it is, 10 meter diameter chamber from the edge of the chamber into the center of the chamber after one explosion happens. And that transit time is what leads to some of the rep rate values. So the targets were all sitting right there next to the center of the target chamber. It's not the issue that it takes a long time for an explosion to happen. It's just that you can't have any of the new targets in any anywhere near the vicinity of the explosion. So you have to shoot it in from far away and that takes time. Okay. What are like the expensive components of the system? Are the targets very expensive or the chambers or, you know, if you were to rank that, what uh-huh. could be duplicated to, again, improve power output, but not make it horrifically expensive or complicated? I think developing cost-effective targets is going to be a huge area that needs R&D over the next decade or so. We're really good with laser drivers, actually, and, and there's a lot of new stuff also. The target chamber itself is, I mean, it's a building, it's infrastructure, but it's not the main cost. I think developing the, the cost-effective targets, because I'll just shoot so many of them a day, that's going to be one of the biggest savings is is that. And I guess the lasers don't have to pulse very fast, so you don't need like femtosecond or attosecond lasers with crazy variability in output. So I guess that part of the equation is pretty stable. No, you actually don't want that. You want nanosecond types of lasers because otherwise you, you can't reach the desired plasma conditions of putting the fuel the way that we want to. Is You need nanosecond lasers. And so it's like you wouldn't want to use femtosecond lasers anyways. Okay. So lasers that are on for durations of nanoseconds but can fire at a, a repetition rate of 10 hertz. We do need to consider short pulse laser improvements for certain fusion energy schemes, such as fast ignition, that try to implode the material slower and then spark it with either an electron beam or a proton beam that's created with these with the short pulse lasers. But that's sort of a different, that's not what you're thinking about exactly here. Well, within the nanosecond fire time of the laser, what if you did have a series of, you know, femtosecond or attosecond lasers that that pulsed within the main nanosecond length pulse to increase its energy? Would that work? So in the fusion fusion ignition scheme, what you have is you're trying to implode the material, you know, with a nanosecond laser. It's relatively slower implosion velocity than we do now. And as you're imploding it, then you shoot a short pulse laser at a converter, which then creates a very intense, fast electron or proton beam, and that ignites the plasma. So that's similar to what you're describing. The different ways to ignite the plasma. Yeah, like within that, you know, nanosecond window, have you you all played with pulsing it more in the beginning or a steady pulsing or more at the end when the explosion gets to a certain point? Like, I know it's a very short window of time. 
but yeah anything else you can do to to mess with it to make it more efficient by again kicking in a few other faster lasers to give additional pulses within that time right so the nanosecond laser we don't just fire all the laser energy under the target in like some set time period we actually very very carefully tailor all the laser powers as a function of time so it already has three distinct plateaus or steps and then a main peak and then a shaped back end all the pieces of the laser power that we define as a function of time they're all very carefully set up to implode the fuel to get to these ignition conditions um, already there are concepts to different concepts like to send a shock in at the end to help ignite the plasma there's a fast ignition we have um, there's ideas about picketed pulses that can help later in time and also help with the coasting time later in time. So there's there's kind of what we call alternate schemes where you can try to get creative with some of these other configurations that are being looked at. And what about the degree of vacuum in the chamber? Does that matter much if you have like super high vacuum versus not a side? So let's say the, the chamber is under vacuum and I think that the degree of vac vacuum in the chamber and the amount of debris you collect will eventually be a problem if if that debris gets onto your optics. Is that what you're asking? Or in the past, I mean, what if uh, there's enough material that mm -hmm. uh, the material exploding out collides with various molecules in the past, and then it it screws up the uh, explosion, or you know, yeah. the laser is passing into the material, but right. it hits uh, you know particles along the way, and it takes away some of the power or sends it off in a different direction and ruins the you know, the spheroidal right. nature of the, you know, et cetera. So right. I wonder if higher vacuum is more beneficial. Yeah, well, we, I mean, the debris is a consideration that um, that any viable scheme would have to address. Uh, you don't fire the laser while you think that there could still be debris in, in the path of the laser beams. Well, I'm trying to do armchair physics and help you solve this thing right on the, on the interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I ask. I know, it's, you know, just wondering. But thanks for entertaining my questions. Sorry. So what what do you think is uh, is possible? So you're you're trying to make the efficiency of the the explosion better. Um, uh -huh. I know in the next five years, what will it look like if the system improves? Like how much? What will be improved? What are like the KPIs? You know, what will get better about it with continuous work on it? You feel like feel like in the next five years. So the next five years is going to be work in a, in a lot of different areas. So. For example, laser technology engineering to field these things at high rep rate. On the design side, we are continuing to do experiments at the National Ignition Facility and study their their sensitivities and the plasma physics around this ignition space. And so specifically for the ICF world or laser driver ICF, we hope to get to increase the gain of the target design so that you can get more out versus what you put in. We hope to go up from about 1.5 to you know, more than 10 in the next few years. I don't like to put time frames and numbers on things, but and then eventually get to the point where we can have enough gain out that that could be useful for a, a pilot plant. There's also a lot of work to try to improve the driver coupling to the implosion. So there's getting more out in the design than what you put in of the implosion itself, but then there's also putting more in. And part of that includes higher efficiency of coupling the laser energy. First, we do laser energy to x-rays and then to the capsule ablation. So it's, can you make that process more efficient as well? And then, of course, there's uh, making the lasers more efficient versus wall plug energy and all the engineering issues that are going to be worked on in the next several years. 
So how much power do you guess that this would be able to generate when it's been improved, you know, multiple times? What do you think is theoretically possible from this system? Um, so right now, the powers that we're getting out are greater than 30 quadrillion watts. So um, extreme pressures. That's at the gain 1.5 level. So if you increase or improve that by a factor of 10 or more, then that's 300 quadril quadrillion watts just from the gain side. And then if you can increase the efficiency of the driver, that's another large factor. I don't have an exact number off the top of my head of, of what we think is possible in the next few years, but we hope to increase that too. And then the power out is ultimately compared to the amount that you draw from the grid. And that's a whole separate question of, of making the laser more efficient. Is this process net positive or is this still suck up more energy than it puts out? So what we achieved on December 5th, 2022 is that we produced more fusion energy than what was used to drive the target. So the laser energy into the hull realm was 2 megajoules, 2.05 megajoules, and we got out 3.15 megajoules of fusion energy. But the efficiency of the laser to draw energy from the grid and then give us that energy on target is not very good. For the NIF, the NIF was designed to be a basic research facility. And so the amount we're actually pulling from the grid is about 350 megajoules. But what would it need to be? What kind of ratios would you need to get for this to be like a huge success and potentially viable for commercial use? So for the laser efficiencies we're looking for, we would need to increase the design to about gain of 10 ish is what we're looking at. It depends on a lot of different factors. So if you're asking how much more efficient do we have to make the design to make this viable, that depends yeah. on the laser, on, you know, on the exact scheme, the laser architecture, how fast you can actually fire it in practice, giving the engineering constraints, et cetera. So, but we're kind of targeting gain 100 designs for a working plant and then gain of 10 in the near term. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Annie, what's the best place for people to keep tabs on the project and watch its improvements? So the National Ignition Facility has a website and also directly through Lawrence Lormer National Laboratory. And the National Ignition Facility posts on its website whenever there's like a big new update. And so that's a great way to keep in touch with the current news. Okay, very good. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's a very complicated issue, but I think you explained it really well. So thank you. Okay. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.